Church, if you could please open up to the book of Matthew, chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 39. As I said earlier, uh, this is the first sermon of the new year for me. I know that Mickey was with y'all last week. But I want the first sermon of the year to be about our theme that I mentioned at the end of last year, not about me. This theme falls in line with my vision for us as a church. As a church, the gospel needs to be central to everything that we are and everything that we do. It defines us and it defines our work. So as a church, we want to love the gospel, live the gospel, and give the gospel. This should be true of our whole church program, each individual ministry, and each individual member of our church. We seek to grow in our love of the gospel so that we might live it out and give it away freely. So to kick off this ministry mindset, I want us to look at the words of Jesus to the 12 apostles here in Matthew chapter 10 as he sends them out on a very similar mission. Here's our main idea this morning. Sacrificial devotion to Jesus and his mission is not a possible side effect of becoming a Christian. It's a symptom. Sacrificial devotion to Jesus and his mission is not a potential side effect. It's a symptom of coming to Christ. So to give you some context this morning, because we are just kind of jumping into the middle of the book here, Matthew's gospel contains five major discourses. Most people are familiar with the first one. It's Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. A lot of people are also very familiar with the fifth, the Olivet Discourse, in chapters 24 and 25. This is when Jesus is teaching on the Mount of Olives about the days to come. The second, third, and fourth are found in Matthew 10, Matthew 13, and Matthew 18. And our passage this morning falls in this second discourse, Matthew 10. In this discourse, Jesus is commissioning the 12 apostles to go out on mission with the news of the gospel. If Matthew 28 is the Great Commission, we might think of Matthew 10 as the First Commission. This chapter unpacks a wonderful mission mandate for all Christians. Now, there are some who look at a passage like this and say, well... Actually, this is just for the 12 apostles, but that's just not true. It was originally given to the 12 apostles, just like the rest of the Bible was originally given to other audiences. But just like the rest of Scripture, this passage is for us in the here and now. Later in Luke chapter 10, Jesus gives a similar commission to 72 other disciples. So just because Jesus here gives it to the 12 apostles doesn't mean it's not for us. Jesus wants us to be on mission, and this discourse shows us how. One more bit of, of context for us that we need to know is that this discourse is placed very intentionally in Matthew's gospel right here. Chapters 5 through 7, Jesus gives the Sermon on the Mount, and it ends with the people were amazed that he taught with such authority, not like their teachers of the law. And then Jesus, in chapters 8 and 9, verify his authority by these miraculous works. He goes around sending the gospel out, healing the blind, casting out demons, healing the sick. 
And then in chapter 10, he gathers his apostles together and he essentially says, what you've just seen me do, now you go and do. You go out and heal the blind. You go out and cast out demons and take the gospel to these cities. So in chapters 8 and 9, Jesus gives an example, and then in chapter 10, he basically tells the apostles, now you go and do what you have seen me do. So with all of that foundation being laid, we're going to read together Matthew chapter 10, verses 34 through 39. I'm going to ask everyone to stand together as I read God's holy word. Just a reminder, a physical posture that reminds us that this is not just a man's opinion. This is the divine word of God. Matthew chapter 10, I will read verses 34 through 39. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, would you please... Do a miraculous work in us this morning as you take the word that you inspired, Lord, and speak it into our hearts that we might be changed, that we might forsake ourselves for the sake of Jesus Christ and his mission. We ask that you do this work in us in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you, church. You can be seated. As we come to our passage today, many in today's culture might think that this first verse here is a little jarring. Do not think that I've come to bring peace to the earth. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. If you hear this outside of a Sunday morning sermon, you might even be tempted to ask, did Jesus actually say something like that? We're coming out of the Christmas season, and at the Christmas Eve candlelight service, we read from a passage in Isaiah... His name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace, right? So if Jesus is the Prince of Peace, what does he mean by, don't think that I have come to bring peace to the earth, but a sword? Some people think that being a Christian or being Christianly means never disagreeing or never offending someone. But Jesus' statement here shoots a hole right through this mentality. He says, I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. Whatever that means, at the very least, it means that there's going to be some type of disturbance. There's going to be a, a causing discomfort, at the least. There's going to be a mass disruption, at the greatest. Some type of disturbance. When we are saved through the gospel, there is a disruption that happens in us. It begins in our hearts, and it begins to eke outwards in all of our lives. It begins to affect our family relationships. It begins to affect our priorities. 
It begins to affect our speech, our conduct. It is impossible to have an encounter with Christ through the gospel and not be changed as a consequence. There's a disruption that happens. And this disruption, it's a lot like when a bone heals incorrectly. Sometimes a doctor might have to go in, depending on the situation, and re-break a bone so that he might set it correctly and it might heal the right way. There has to be this disruption before there can be stability. The gospel breaks us and destabilizes our center of gravity before recentering us around Jesus. And in our passage this morning, we're going to see three examples of this recentering effect that the gospel has on those who have decided to follow Jesus. Here's number one. Through the gospel, Jesus recenters our love. Immediately following this mysterious peace and sword statement, Jesus begins to explain, starting in verse 35. For I've come to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Again, this example should be jarring. What we might expect for Jesus to say is something more like this. I've come to help families get along. I've come to help sons get along with their fathers, and daughters get along with their mothers, and daughter-in-laws with their mother-in-laws. This might be what we expect for Jesus to say, but that's not what Jesus says. To be as clear as possible, Look at verse 35. For I have come to set a man against. And that word is repeated. A daughter against. A daughter-in-law against. Jesus has come to set us against people. Specifically in this passage, people in the family. We see in verse 36 that this setting against makes Enemies, and I want you to see this. Look at verse 36. A person's enemies will be those of his own household. So when we read this, we have to walk away saying, Well, Jesus came to make us enemies against our families? What does this mean? Verse 37 reveals in part the source of this conflict. If you love your father or mother or son or daughter more than Jesus, you are not worthy of Jesus. Well, what does that mean? What does it mean you are not worthy of Jesus? Luke 14, Jesus gives the exact same example here, if you'd like to write that down for further study. Luke 14, and he phrases it slightly different. He says, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. The language here is both much clearer and much less comforting, isn't it? If you love anything or anyone more than Jesus, you cannot be his disciple. 
you are not his disciple. When someone becomes a Christian, Jesus re-centers himself as the center of that person's universe. That person's life becomes enveloped around Jesus. What I think, what I do, how I live. That person's love becomes re-centered towards Jesus over and above all other things, even some of the strongest ties that we have on earth, our family. And that is where this division comes from that Jesus talks about. There will be some families where one member's devotion to Jesus is just too radical. That's just too far. This Christian, in thought, word, and deed, proclaims, my love for Christ is worth dividing over. My love for Christ is worth having a difficult relationship with certain family members. If Christ calls me to live a certain way and my family doesn't like it, I don't disobey Christ in order to keep the peace. I love Christ. I will follow Christ. Now, this doesn't just apply to family relationships, though that's what we see here. I think because in this context, in this culture, those family relationships are so strong. This applies to church family as well. I've heard something to this effect several times regarding the church. Can't we all just get along? I think it's a good question. The answer is yes and no, however. Yes, we should make sacrifices in order to get along. Absolutely, we need to. But no, we should not sacrifice our supreme devotion to following Christ in order to get along. There are some things in the church that are actually worth dividing over. And one of those things is making Christ and his commands supreme in our lives. Our supreme devotion. Our ultimate love. This is the first Sunday of the year for me to preach. So you'll forgive me if I stomp on a few toes for just a moment. Doesn't anyone else think it's odd? How frequently or easily, we are willing to be divisive over the most insignificant issues. And yet, when it comes to deeper gospel issues in the church, we are so willing to compromise just to keep the peace. When playing the guitar or implementing a new song in a church service is worth grumbling or complaining about, while gossip or church members who regularly forsake the gathering are not, we have replaced our love for Jesus with the love of something else. Jesus came to turn our world upside down. Things in a church look different because they are different. All of us have been destabilized by the gospel, or we should be. 
so that we might be re-centered around something else. And the rest of the world doesn't understand that. And they look at us and they say, well, that's just not right. And there's this tension. And some Christians think that tension means we're doing something wrong. We need to change something so that that goes away. But a lot of times what we change is the very thing that makes us Christian. Jesus tells us here, I have not come to bring peace but a sword. He expects there to be some type of destabilization. But instead, we replace our love for Christ with a love for sometimes something good. Unity, that's a good thing. It makes a terrible God. I love music more than Jesus. I love sports more than Jesus. I love my children more than Jesus. Let me tell you, I have a newborn at the house not even two weeks old. I love that dude so much. (laughs) You never think you could love someone more than you have a child. I still love these two back here too, where they at? I still love y'all too. I cannot and I do not love them more than I love Jesus. Though my mind cannot comprehend that sometimes, my soul knows it to be true. I love my reputation more than Jesus. I love my spouse more than Jesus. I love traditional worship services more than Jesus. I love contemporary worship services more than Jesus. I love getting along more than Jesus. I love work more than Jesus. I love financial security more than Jesus. We could just add an endless list of things here. Jesus came to decenter our love for lesser things so that he might recenter it around where it belongs. Jesus. He's the object of our love. And what our passage this morning is telling us is that it's okay for there to be division if it has to do with our love for Jesus and our commitment to the gospel. Not only is it okay, it's expected for that to happen. That's number one. Through the gospel, Jesus recenters our love. Number two, through the gospel, Jesus recenters our life. Jesus recenters our life. It isn't just our love for things or people that's destabilized by the gospel. Look at verse 38 as we continue. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. This phrase, take his cross, is a call to die. It's easy to read over this and recognize, okay, it's a call to die, but kind of miss the imagery here. Because we've kind of glamorized the cross today. We all have those cross wall decorations or necklaces or charms on our bracelets or backgrounds on our phones. It's everywhere. We love the cross and we should love the cross because on it our Savior paid for our sin and showed his love for us. But we've done such a good job of glamorizing and decorating the cross that I think we've made it easy to forget exactly what it is. The cross is a torture device. It's designed intentionally to slowly kill a human being as painfully as possible. That's the purpose of it. The purpose of a cross, it wasn't invented just so that Jesus could die. It existed before Jesus died. 
Criminals would be hung on it, and the intent is we want you to die as slowly and painfully as possible, and we want you to feel every bit of it. It's a torture device. The phrase, take his cross, here, this call to die, is coupled with this other phrase, follow me. Whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. So the call to follow Jesus, in a sense, is a call to die. Die how? Again, I'm going to go to another gospel where the same teaching is brought up. It's Mark 8:34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So the call to follow Jesus is this call to die to self by denying self. That word deny, to deny himself, it implies that I don't give myself something that I want. I'm denying myself. To deny, I want something, but I deny, my, I will not let myself have that thing. To do this with one's life means that we are no longer the ones with the greatest say over what we do or don't do with our lives. I don't have the greatest say over my life anymore. My wife doesn't have the greatest say over my life anymore. But she has a significant amount of say. It's not the greatest. Jesus has become our life. Following Jesus is what we spend our lives doing. Now listen carefully. This requires sacrifice. There's what I want to do, and then there's what Jesus wants me to do, and those are not always the same. To take up one's cross and follow Jesus is to want to do what Jesus wants, even though I want something else. Let me give you an example. I really want to just be impatient and rude right now, but I want to follow Jesus more. So I will deny my flesh that I might follow Christ. When someone pulls out in front of you in traffic, I really want to scream and yell at this person, though they can't hear me right now. That's what I want, but I believe Jesus wants something more. And I want what Jesus wants, so I will deny myself that. It is to deny our flesh that we might follow Christ. Our life becomes walking as Jesus walked. To put it really simply, we live out the truths of the gospel because we love the gospel. When our love is recentered, everything else around that, it's like rings whenever you throw a stone into a pond, and it starts with one ring, then two rings, and three rings, and it just slowly reverberates outward. Our love is that central plunge, and then it echoes out, and it starts to affect everything in our lives. Now, this call to die, this decision to die, is a daily decision. It involves our entire life from this moment forward. The day you become a Christian, it starts there, and then it just reverberates every single day. I'm going to die, I'm going to die, I'm going to die. I'm not going to give myself what I want. I know I want this, I don't want it. I want what Jesus wants every single day. Think of what this might look like. Every day, hearing from Jesus. 
talking to Jesus, talking about Jesus, imitating Jesus, thinking about Jesus, trusting Jesus, confiding in Jesus, sharing Jesus with others, turning from our sin to look like Jesus. In each of these examples, a sacrifice is required. There must be some type of self-denial. I can't hear from Jesus if I'm not sacrificing time in order to hear from Jesus. I can't talk to or about Jesus if I don't sacrifice talking to or about something or someone else. If I spend all my time talking about something else, how am I going to talk about Jesus? To imitate Jesus, I have to sacrifice acting in another way. To trust Jesus, I have to sacrifice trusting in someone else or even myself to accomplish something that I really need his help to accomplish. Through the gospel, Jesus becomes the center of our love and the center of our life. And that happens through sacrifice. Number three, through the gospel, Jesus recenters our purpose. He recenters our purpose. Look at verse 39. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. You might think, well, wait, Garrett, you just did life. Technically, yes, that's correct. But that's a daily orientation of living, a living out daily. Take up your cross daily, as another account puts it. Daily life. That's not what we're talking about here. What we're talking about now is more large scale. It's life as a whole. What do you live for? What's your purpose? Yet again, I'm going to read Mark's account here. Mark 8.35 Whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Do you catch that? That addition there. Whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Think about our passage in Matthew. It's in the second discourse where Jesus is sending the apostles out on mission. He says, you're going to go to the 12 apostles. He names them at the beginning. And then he says, go nowhere among the Gentiles or enter no town of the Samaritans, but go rather to the lost sheep of the house of Israel and proclaim as you go, saying, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. And then he tells them persecution is going to come, but have no fear. Take up your cross daily, and you will receive a reward. It's in this context that Jesus calls them to lose their lives. So when Jesus recenters our lives, he is also recentering our purpose. Now we live for something else. Not just to demonstrate the gospel, but to actually give the gospel to others. A lot of Christians have turned Christianity into a moral code. And in a sense, we've made it almost just like every other religion in the world. Christianity just becomes a way to live and do the right thing and feel good about yourself. But that's not the gospel in full. Part of the gospel is that our entire purpose has changed. 
Just like the apostles, we have been sent out by Christ to give the gospel to a dying world. That is your purpose once you're a Christian. That is my purpose. This isn't reserved just for ministers or missionaries. This is for all of us. What this means is that we must give up our other purposes in life in order to truly live out our ultimate purpose. And this is what Jesus means by losing one's life. It doesn't mean that everyone has to go into vocational ministry. It doesn't mean that we don't have professions or we don't have other passions in life. What it does mean is that any other purpose we have in life ought to serve this highest purpose, which is giving the gospel away. Through the gospel, everyone becomes an evangelist or a minister or a missionary. You don't have to go into vocational evangelism or ministry or mission work, but if you're a Christian, you are called to those same tasks. You may not be on a stage speaking in front of people, sharing the gospel. You may be at a coffee shop talking with someone across the table. You may be at home sharing the gospel with your children or with your grandchildren. Maybe you're on break at work or you're in an office sharing with your coworkers. It looks different for all of us. How we give it away differs, but all Christians are called to give it away. It's not an option. There's one final word here. What if our lives, our purpose, what if it's not recentered around the gospel? What if that just doesn't describe me? What if I'm not marked by a daily self-denial so that I might follow Christ? Whoever finds his life will lose it. Here's what that means. Whoever finds his life apart from this recentering effect of the gospel will lose it. If you find your life in something else, you will lose it. There is no such thing as half hearted devotion. If it's half hearted, I don't know what it is, it's not devotion. By necessity, our devotion will be imperfect. We're not going to be perfectly devoted but it cannot be half-hearted. Hear me clearly. If Jesus isn't your life, you don't have eternal life. And I don't say that because I hate you. I say that because I love you. If Jesus isn't your life, you don't have eternal life. You will lose your life then because you didn't lose it now. So many people have found their lives in so many different things. Hobbies, or community, or sports, or family, or careers, or entertainment, or relaxation, comfort, retirement. We just live for that. I'm just living for the day that I can do this. And in the end, you will lose your life. Your life is not meant to be about you. Your life is meant to be about the gospel of Jesus Christ. Life is not about me anymore. It's all about the gospel. That's why we exist. We are called to love the gospel, to love and to give the gospel because Jesus has recentered our love, our lives, and our purpose all around him. So church, 
may we be ready and willing to live sacrificially for the sake of the gospel. May we love Jesus and the gospel supremely. May we live out the gospel as we follow Jesus daily. And may we give the gospel of Jesus away faithfully. May we make our Christianity less about me and all about him. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have given us a church family. A body of believers who all believe this wonderful truth. That our lives are not about us anymore. It's all about you. Thank you for giving us the weekly gathering, Lord, where we can come together and remind one another of this wonderful truth so that we might be energized and strengthened by your word to live out daily what you've called us to do as your followers, that we might take up our cross daily to follow you. That we might deny our flesh daily and turn from our sin daily to follow you. That we might seek opportunities, Lord, to give out the gospel to others daily. That we might have a deepening affection for you and for your word. Lord, that that affection might trump, it might override, it might take over our love for lesser things. Lord, we cannot do this work on our own because our hearts are deceitfully wicked, beyond understanding. Lord, you are the one who changes hearts and changes lives. This morning, Lord, in this room, I know that there are some hearts who have not been centered around Jesus because they have not yet been destabilized. They are comfortable right where they're at. Yet, Lord, I know that part of your work through your word is ruining us so that we might realize our need for you. And I pray that you would do that work this morning in the heart that does not truly know you, that hears your words this morning to take up one's cross daily and realizes that is not me. But I am ready for that to be me. I am ready to belong to Christ alone. I pray that you would stir that individual's heart and he or she might decide today to follow you. Lord, for the rest of us, help us daily to take up our cross, to not make our lives about us, our desires, our preferences, Lord, to draw a line in the sand and to say no matter what, we will love Jesus and we will follow Jesus. We ask you to do this work in us in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.